Our first reading is from Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I attended the home opener for the Kansas City Royals in the spring of 2012. That's a baseball team for you who are not into team sports. My brother had purchased tickets uh, as a Christmas gift. We tailgated before the game. In Advent fashion, we were brimming with anticipation. Unfortunately, our starting pitcher gave up seven runs in the first inning. And we didn't stay past the third. The Royals went on to lose nearly 100 games that year. It was their 17th losing season in 18 years. Imagine someone leaving the game with me that spring day, predicting with certainty that within two years, the Royals would go to the World Series and then return the next year win the World Series, and I would join 800,000 other people for a victory parade on the same streets I would take to drive home. I would have said that is foolishly optimistic. The book of Isaiah opens with an indictment. The nation is corrupt. It's filled with people more concerned with maximizing profit than caring for the needy. Chapter 1, verse 23 reads, They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. And therefore, God turned against them. Israel will be like an oak with fading leaves verse 30 says, like a garden without water, the mighty man will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. That's how the chapter ends. Imagine if someone would have predicted that out of this shady nation, a lighthouse of truth and justice would one day come. That people from all over the world would be drawn to the presence of God as God is manifest among them. You would say that is foolishly 
optimistic. But when the living God makes a promise, it is neither foolish nor optimistic. It is certain. And that's what happens in Isaiah chapter 2. God flips the script. God pronounces grace. God promises a peaceable kingdom, a new world order of redeemed ethnic unity centered on Jesus Christ. We're going to focus this Advent on the assigned Old Testament lessons, and they are all prophecies from the book of Isaiah. And this one, the first word Scripture speaks to us this church year, is the promise that all will be well. I want to say two things today. I want to say something about the roar of the people and something about the strike of the gavel. Roar of the people and the strike of the gavel. These are the sounds of the victory of God. First, though, digression. I couldn't figure out how to work this in. Has this vision of Isaiah been fulfilled? Do we understand this promise to have been answered? On the one hand, no. Nations still train for war. The peoples of the earth, as we prayed last week, remain divided and enslaved by sin. In the season of Advent, we look both to the once and future coming of the Lord Jesus. And much of what Isaiah says here awaits realization. And we remind ourselves of this during Holy Communion. Christ will come again, we say. But on the other hand, Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ has left in his wake this mystery called the church, which is comprised of nearly every people group on earth. As a global entity, the church is a majority-minority institution. There is no geographical center. And the church grows larger and more diverse every day. The number of Christians around the world has nearly quadrupled in the last hundred years. So, there is a sense in which we wait for the fullness of what God has promised here. But there are signs, there are foretakes of what Isaiah said would come to pass in our day. This text describes our present and points to a certain future. God, I believe, uses passages like this to engender hope and to stir us to action. But we need to see both the already and the not yet. And I'm going to kind of toggle between them. So I thought I'd just give that framework. All right. The roar of the people, the first sound of the victory of God. It was common in Isaiah's time to imagine the mountains as the residence of the gods. So we read in verse 2 that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established as the highest of the mountains. What does that mean? It means that one day... People 
will realize that the God Israel worshipped in their little corner of the world was not just for Israel. They'll see that the truth with which the truth that Israel believed and tried to live by was not just their truth, but everybody's truth. And Isaiah says that truth, that unveiling of true reality, will be established. It will be exalted above every other story or description of the nature and purpose of humankind. The mountain of the Lord's house will be established higher than any other mountain. It will reign supreme. Now, what follows is interesting, because you would think that that type of preeminence would engender resentment or inspire, like, sedition or, like, you know, we're very weary of totalizing narratives, right? But here it says this type of establishment will exert a a dizzying magnetism when the Lord's temple is is higher than any other people from Mongolia to Madagascar to Malvern, Pennsylvania will stream to it. They will flow upwards, as it were. And a community Unlike anything that has ever been seen before, a convergence of every culture and every language is created. And they give, this company of people, give voice to a longing to hear the Lord Jesus speak. They want to be taught by him, it says to take up his yoke and learn from him because he is gentle and humble of heart. There is a longing to be free from the false direction and faulty instruction of our culture's gods. Eugene Peterson translates this verse. He says, let's climb the mountain. We want to learn how God works so we can live the way we've been made. That's the roar of the people. And I want to say two things about it. The first thing I want to say, I want to note, it's sincerity. These people are in earnest. They're drawn to God for all the right reasons, and they're excited to be in the presence of God. I spend most of my time around people who identify as Christians. It's an occupational hazard. (laughs) Most of those people, not all, but most of them, have been Christians or think of themselves in that way and have been for quite a while. And it's one thing I've noticed in my own life and in doing this, is that it can be hard to remain sincere and tender-hearted when you follow Jesus for a while and have felt disappointed or hurt or confused. I feel like that. That there's areas of my life where I feel like God has 
frankly, let me down. And so I've had to fight for sincerity and earnestness. Our natural inclination, left unchecked, is to grow cynical or jaundiced. My guess is that most of you spend most of your time with people who have either been Christians for a while or who would not identify themselves in that way. Another way to put that is you're probably not spending a lot of time around people who have very recently become Christians. And I don't know if this is true, but my guess is that some of us struggle to remember why people would decide to follow Jesus at all. If they weren't born into it or didn't have some dramatic crisis. This is a rhetorical question. Why do you? What would you lose if you just woke up tomorrow and forgot the whole thing? I read through portions of the Gospels this week with those kinds of questions in mind. And what I noticed is that people were not drawn to Jesus out of a desire for control or for certainty. They certainly weren't trying to advance their careers or receive a a material blessing. The people that were drawn to Jesus were people who were experiencing the impossibility of life. People whose bodies or minds weren't working. People who were ignored by everybody else. And Jesus ennobled them. Jesus dignified them. Jesus freed them to become the best version of themselves. The British novelist Zadie Smith dropped this bomb in a recent interview with the Toronto Star. I think the hardest thing for anyone, she said, is accepting that other people are as real as you are. That's it. Not using them as tools, not using them as examples or things to make yourself feel better, things to get over or under. And it's so difficult, this accepting that other people are as real as you are, that basically the only person that ever did it was Christ. The rest of us are very, very far behind. Non-rhetorical question. Is Zadie Smith a Christian? I don't, I don't know. But I do know that she's a lot less cynical and jaded about who Jesus is and what Jesus represents than a lot of Christians I know. She gets it, that Jesus means freedom, dignity, healing, restoration, liberty from the false direction and faulty instruction of our culture's gods. There's this roar of sincerity and earnestness displayed in Isaiah 2. It's a reminder that the words of Jesus are beautiful and invigorating and altogether new. It's earnest. And second thing, it's unified. It's unified. There's a lot of first-person plural pronouns in the passage. Come, let us go up to the mountain. God will teach us. We will walk in his paths. There's this astounding harmony 
predicted here. All the different peoples and cultures and ways of life on the planet are being reconciled as one, uh, horizontally as it were, as they're vertically reconciled, are brought into the presence of God. And we've been talking a little bit about this theme uh, this season. If you weren't here two Sundays ago, I would recommend listening to Joe Ho's sermon about this. It takes 26 minutes. It will not be a waste of time. I recently heard an illustration about how unity, oneness in Christ, is both a gift and a task. And I found it really helpful, so I'm going to share it with you. (laughs) Um, Married couples remember the date of their wedding. They may not remember their anniversary, or at least in time to do something meaningful, but if you ask them, what what day were you married? I think most people will answer yes, or they'll know it. (laughs) Mine was May 13th, 2011. And I'll never forget that day because, well, for a few reasons, but when, uh, don't go there, Anne. (laughs) When the minister pronounced Meg and I, husband and wife, before God, before our family and friends, we were bound together in this covenantal way. It was a pure gift. Someone from outside of us made it so. But that was just the beginning. There was a day on the calendar when our unified life began. There will be no corresponding day to mark when we've arrived. I'm constantly learning new things about Meg, about how her experience of the world is different than mine, how I inadvertently annoy her, how I have to reframe some of my assumptions about how things work in order for us to flourish together as a couple. So we keep working at it. We pursue unity despite being united already. So too with the body of Christ. So too with Church of the Cross. We are united in the Lord. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. But we're not done yet. It's not, you know, well, we're one in Christ, so can we just move on? No, it doesn't work like that in marriage, and it doesn't work like that in the life of the church. We have to take the time to learn each other's stories, to ask questions about the places and the cultures from which we came, how we see the world. We have to learn about our greatest hurts and our deepest joys. We have to pursue oneness, unity, despite already being made one in the Lord. And the roar of Isaiah 2, come, let us go up together to the house of the Lord, reminds us this is the case. So the roar of the people, the strike of the gavel. In an earlier version of this talk, my second point was titled, The Clanging of the Hammers. And I was referring to the sound of swords and spears being beaten into plowshares. It's a vivid and appealing image. But the title kind of buries the headline. 
Because for Isaiah, the abolition of weapons is the consequence of a divinely reordered world where nations which had been at war with each other are reconciled to one another by the recognition of the one true God. If you look with me at verse 4 at the very beginning, there are two words that are the only active verbs assigned to God in the passage. He shall, he shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. On view is King Jesus, wise and merciful in his sovereignty, striking the gavel and ending inequity. And that setting of the world to right, that rectification, to use a big word, is the ground for the ending of violence. Martin Luther King, he famously said, there can be no peace without justice, and that's what's promised here. A setting the world to right, which issues in universal peace. It issues in conversion, in a like, very literal sense of the word. Instruments for taking life become implements for sustaining life. And the means and the mentality and the practice of war disappear. It's a beautiful image. And I want to say this, this vision of world peace is both heavenly-minded and of earthly good. It's heavenly-minded because this description of where our world is going is not the fruition of a human social program. Our propensity to act out of self-interest and screw things up is far too intractable for that. It says in uh, Revelation 21, I think, that the new Jerusalem, the new city, which is kind of like the temple here, it's all the same swirl, will descend out of heaven from God. The overturning of the world's curriculum from learning war to learning holiness will be done by God and God alone. But that doesn't mean we're off the hook, or it doesn't leave us, I should say, passive, merely waiting for that day to come. This is a poetic vision for how the human story will, in fact, end. And when followers of Jesus wrap their mind around that and are animated by that, it sustains service, and it draws out the very best of us. I read this week about the Abyssinian Baptist Church. It's in Harlem. It's just above 125th Street in New York City. If you go to Harlem now, uh, well, it's changed a lot. But in the early 1990s, when this article was written, there was a lot more, uh, shall we say, urban character to the neighborhood. Burned out buildings, pawn shops, boarded up storefronts, stuff like that. And a lot of churches in this region were leaving, you know, moving to suburbs. Uh, but this church, the Abyssinian Baptist Church, stayed. 
They organized a locally owned bank to serve residents. They set up daycare programs. They did Bible studies in high-rise apartments. They conducted boycotts against price-gouging corporations. But of course, they didn't solve every problem. Lots of problems remained. Well, there was a, I heard about this in a newspaper article, and the author interviewed uh, the pastor of this church. And he, he said, in effect, you're doing all this great work, but what difference is all this making? It's hard to see what difference this is making. And this is what he said, pastor. We've read the Bible, and we know how it ends. We aren't there yet, but we know how it ends. And that's what makes the difference. There's this wonderful vision of peace and justice, the ending of inequity. Are we going to solve not just the world's problems, the problems of Windsor Park? No, of course not. But does that mean we just sit back and watch? No, we know how it ends. And that's what makes the difference. The passage ends with an exhortation. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. I want to end in a similar way. I tried to get at like three things today. The notion of sincerity, having a soft heart with God, not being cynical or jaded, fighting for that. I also talked about unity, taking the time and showing the generosity of spirit to really get to know people here. And I talked about practical action, like doing something to improve the lives of those less fortunate than ourselves. I want to encourage you this season of Advent to try to work on one of those. Whichever one you feel like God is inviting you to pay attention to. And make that your act of devotion and preparation this season. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.